Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four-part series entitled Unorthodox Episodes from the Talmud. The series was recorded as Zoom lectures for Caulfield Shul in 2020. Listeners of the audio podcast who would like to watch the videos should go to the episode webpage at davidsolomon.online where you will find details of how to watch the video. The uh, episode from the Talmud I'm going to do today is a very, very uh, complex uh, piece of Talmud. Um, complex for complex for a huge amount of reasons. Um, and it might actually even take us more than one week to go through this, uh, this very complex piece of Talmud. Um, so I'm going to make a start. It, it just on a narrative level, it's fascinating. But uh, there are so many halakhic and historic issues arising from it. So I'm just warning you that it's not like this series contains self, you know, self-contained packages of, of marvelous information with a message and so on. There's lots of messages in here, but it might be we might have to stretch this over over a couple of weeks, even just just this particular one. So um, I'm going to learn a very famous piece of Talmud. When I say famous, a lot of people uh, are not aware of it, uh, but it is uh, famous amongst those who trawl through the sea of the Talmud looking for extremely unorthodox episodes. Uh, or behavior of the rabbis uh, who uh, comprise the chief personalities of the Talmud. And it is located right at the end of the tractate known as Baba Kama, which deals with damages and torts. And on uh, page 117a, Kufiud Zayin Amud Aleph, those of you who want to follow, I've obviously got the, uh, the Gemara right here. Uh, but I, we couldn't organize for the page to come up, uh, besides which... Uh, that might alienate some people. It's a very big block of Talmudic text, so I'm just going to go through it here. And in uh, at the end of Baba Kama, the uh, rabbis are talking about uh, the laws of what we call Mesira. Mesira is a concept whereby a person um, literally hands over the, the life or the property of another Jewish person to um, some kind of authority, whether it be a government, whether it be local landlords, whether it be the local mafia, uh, who are searching out property. And if you hand over the property of another Jew, let's say the government comes to you and they say, uh, do you know anyone who's got uh, some silver in their house? And you say, oh, and you hide your own silver, but you say, oh, go and knock on Chaim Schmerl's door. Uh, because uh, he's got some silver, the government comes and takes it, then basically you're obligated uh, for the loss of that silver, even though you personally didn't take it, but you're responsible for the government or for the the uh, ruling thugs uh, who've come and taken it. And there's a general uh, assumption that non-Jewish governments are not particularly uh, protective or considerate of the property of Jews. This, of course, is through right from the Talmudic ages, right through the, the medieval times. Today, it's a little different in countries like Australia, where everybody, even Jews, are protected by the law, one assumes. 
but in those days, it was a very serious business, the whole concept of Masira. And a number of the laws of Masira, astonishingly, are worked out from this Agadic episode. So that's just the background, what the Talmud has been talking about uh, on, uh, by the time it gets to this point on, on Daf Kuf Yudzayan on page 117. And they bring a number of cases where they show different facets of the concept of Masira and the concept of what a person is obligated for if they have handed over the property of someone else uh, to the authorities. And then the Talmud just embarks on this uh, really just phenomenally astonishing story that has really three parts to it. And I'm going to just try and unpack the first part of this story. So please bear in mind that when we talk about this, this is really just the first part of this narrative. I thought for a, a little bit that I might go through the entire narrative on a superficial level, but I, I think actually we'll break it up and we'll discuss it as we go along and we'll see how far we get today and it'll be a to-be-continued next week. All right. On the subject of Messiah, on the subject of handing over someone else's property, so the Talmud starts to tell you that there was a, there was a dude, there was a person, a man, he wanted, uh, this is obviously in, uh, in Babylonia, which today we call Iraq, uh, in the great uh, pale of Jewish settlement that was happening in the third and fourth centuries uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Hundreds of uh, committed Jewish communities were living there. It really was a very dynamic center of the Jewish world. Uh, without a doubt, the kind of leading community of the diaspora, the whole community of, of, of Babylonia. So uh, this particular individual wanted uh, to show the authorities the straw of his neighbor. Now, the reason it would appear that the Talmud Jews, the Talmud doesn't say why uh, he wanted, he, why the government was particularly interested in straw. But perhaps uh, one of the reasons why the Talmud brought this is to show that even something as um, cheap or as unimportant as straw uh, is still subject to the laws of Masira. So this individual wanted to show his neighbor's straw to the government and say, oh, he's got some straw in his shed, why don't you go and take that? So utterly made the rub. So he came, or perhaps he was um, coerced, to come before the Bet Din, the ecclesiastical court of Rav. Now, Rav, as we know, I mean, this is the great Rav, the, who we, uh, his name was Abba Aricha, who had studied under the very last teachers of the Mishnaic period, of the Tanaitic period in the land of Israel. He himself had been born in Babylonia, but he went and, as a young man and studied in the land of Israel and became a great scholar. Uh, the greatest scholar of his generation, really, but he didn't quite make it into the Mishnaic period. He came back to Babylonia, and as those of you who would know, who that series we gave a couple of years ago, Chazal and the Age of Empires, and also we looked a little bit in the Gonic period. Uh, Rav was the founder of the Great Academy of Sura, one of the great academies in Babylonia, uh, and just an enormous sage and dominant personality of that era. So obviously he had a court. And one of the interesting things about this particular Talmudic piece, apart from anything else, is that we 
can kind of date it as to where it's meant to be. There's been quite a lot of uh, critical work done in the last few decades on this piece of Talmud, and we might touch upon that a bit later, but for the time being, we can kind of date it that it's probably happening sometime around the early 240s. So Rav has been back in Babylonia for 20 years now. He's established Surah, he's established his authority in Babylonia. He's got this very, very important ecclesiastical court. And this individual who has declared that he wants to, uh, or that he was suspected that he was going to show the, uh, someone else's straw to the government, uh, is brought before the Beftim. Amale, so Rav says, Rav, here's all the details to do with this, and he says to this individual, you will not show him, you will not show him. In other words, um, based on all the circumstances here, there's absolutely no permission for you to show uh, the straw of your neighbor to the local authorities. A hundred percent not. You're not allowed to do that because uh, it doesn't matter how insignificant the object is. If it belongs to another Jewish person, you are not allowed to surrender the information about that property to the government if they are looking for it. Now, just one note of that, because the, and well, and one of the reasons why I chose this text is that the laws of Masira uh, are sometimes a little subject to... Um, misinterpretation today. So it's probably quite important to uh, clear this up because Halakha itself, uh, much later on in, in um, medieval and late medieval Halakha codifications, they use the story that we're about to discuss uh, as a source text for a number of the laws relating to the concept of Mesira, the concept of handing over another Jew to the authorities or another Jew's property to the authorities. And it is the universal opinion of halachic authorities today that the laws of Masira do not apply to someone who is, whose behavior uh, forms criminal nuisance. That is, that they are, for example, and in the famous case that's often quoted, that if someone is guilty of, uh, say, uh, offenses such as uh, serious uh, sexual offenses such as abusing children and so on and i don't need to go into that to talk about those issues they're very famous in uh, in current debate at the moment but the laws of masira do not cover a person in that case and if you're aware in any uh, jewish institution or jewish community that someone is acting in that way you have an obligation to inform the police and to inform the local authorities. So we need to clarify that, that when we talk about the laws of Mesira, uh, we're not talking about uh, cases like that. However, uh, the Talmud and later Halakhic authorities are very, very particular about Jews' relations with the governing authorities, particularly in, 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 in ancient and medieval times, and uh, you're not allowed to surrender the property of another person. So Ralph tells him, you can't show the government where your friend's straw is or your neighbor's straw is. So this chap stands up in the court and he says, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him. In other words, uh, provocative and deliberate 
and willful um, intent to disobey the directive of the Bethdim. And he says, I'm going to show him. Uh, once again, uh, relevant, relevant to today and even relevant in an Australian context. Uh, and I don't think that I'm going to uh, be too controversial uh, if I say that in recent years, even in this country, it's gone as far as the Supreme Court of New South Wales and even the High Court of Australia. The issue of whether or not someone has the, uh, it can be empowered within a Jewish community to uh, basically uh, flick the forks at a best din and say, uh, I, I, I'm not going to obey your summons. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. So all of these issues remain relevant. In this particular case, once again, the Talmud is showing someone who has a, a willful disregard for the instructions of the Beth Din. This person says, not the government or whoever it is, is looking for straw, and I want to be a good citizen, and I'm going to show the government where that chap's straw is held. Now, the Talmud tells us that as this person stood up to willfully tell Rav, the greatest sage in Babylonia, that he, he did didn't care about what he was being told and he wasn't going to listen, he was going to do the opposite. So there was another great rabbi, a younger in Babylonia, called Rav Kahana. There are several Rav Kahanas mentioned throughout the Talmud and uh, scholarship is not is a thousand percent sure which Rav Kahana this is. We have a, a basic idea that it's one of two possible figures that are referred to as Rav Kahana, and there are stories, maybe even this one, which kind of conflate the two personalities. But we do know that this great sage Rav Kahana uh, was a student uh, colleague of Rav, and it was not unusual for uh, high-level student colleagues to be sitting in the Bethdin uh, as part of their um, uh, part of their vocation and part of their studies and so on, and they would be kind of like an assistant Dayan. There would be like an assistant judge of this court. So Rav Kahana was sitting there at the time that uh, this chap made this declaration that he was not going to follow the dictates of the Bethlehem. So Yatim Rav Kahana came to Rav. Rav Kahana was sitting in front of Rav. And Shabte Lakuei Minei. Rav Kahana, when he heard this man say, I'm not going to do what you're going to tell me, I'm going to do the opposite. And I, I want you to imagine that this happens in the best day today. He jumped up, ran over to this fellow and ripped out his windpipe. He killed it. I mean, other commentaries say that uh, ripping out his windpipe is a bit graphic. That's what the Talmud actually says. So kind of, he, he broke his neck. In any event, he killed him. Other commentators come along and say he didn't mean to kill him. Others say, yes, he did mean to kill him. Uh, whilst that might be shocking, and in fact, it, it would be shocking today. You can imagine that if reports of this kind of behavior were emerging in a best in today in Australia, uh, that you would have heard about it in the AJN, no doubt, but uh, people would be a little hesitant to go to best in if in fact uh, that sort of thing was happening. But nevertheless, this particular episode, and why I call it an unorthodox episode, is actually used as a source 
for later halachic authorities uh, for the idea that Mesira handing over the life and property of Jews to non-Jewish authorities was considered so seriously that it was regarded as a as a as a reasonable pretext for killing someone on the spot. And as some people even want to translate that to today, there is a flow on between the idea of Mesira of handing over uh, to the to the authorities and the idea of Rodef, the idea that there is a that someone you can have a license to kill someone that is about themselves to commit a capital crime. And all of these issues rise to the fore, but none are as shocking as the fact that this assistant judge stood, jumped up and, and killed this defendant in court. So, Kare Rav in so Rav sitting there watching this, the first thing he says is that it reminds him of a verse, a verse in Isaiah. I mean, you can imagine that he's sitting there and uh, his assistant Diana's just killed the defendant. And he says, you know, that reminds me of a verse. And uh, it's a verse from Isaiah. Your children have fainted. They're lying at the heads of all the streets. Like, a, like an ox caught in a net, like a wild ox, a wild animal caught in a net. And Rav says, what's the meaning of this? Just like this wild ox, since he has fallen in the net, no one has mercy on him. Also the property of Jewish people. Once it ends up in the hands of the Gentiles, no one has mercy on it. Now, en marach min could also mean that no one should have mercy on this defendant. By saying this verse and giving this interpretation, he is in fact providing an approbation, a, 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 an approval of Rav Kahana's behavior. None of the commentaries on the Talmud, none of the commentaries on the Talmud, there are many commentaries on the Agarit sections of the Talmud, and especially this particular Agaric section because it has halachic consequences. None of them question the fact, amazingly, and that's why from our perspective today it's a bit unorthodox. None of them question the fact that Rav Kahana was entitled to kill this defendant on the spot. They all go into different aspects of this kind of the consequences of this behavior, but no one questions the right to kill him because they say that he had uh, willfully defied the instruction of the Beth Din and he was about to hand over the property of Jewish people to the non-Jewish authorities and he deserved to die and Rav Kahana killed him. And that just seems very straightforward for all the halakhic authorities, amazingly, for our sensibilities today. But sometimes we have to get into the mindset of the Talmud to really work out what's going on. Now, here comes an absolutely fascinating statement because Ralph then turns around and says to him, Amale Ralph, Kahana, he says to him, and uh, this has actually caused uh, a number of, I, I noticed that there were a number of uh, different uh, shiurim on, 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 on this agarita on, on, online, and, and most seem to, uh, in my humble opinion, misread the Gemara here because 
it, it looks like it says Amale Rav Kahana, those of you who are following, but it's actually Amale Rav. Rav said to him, Kahana, listen, Adaidna, until today, Abu Parsai, the Persians were in charge. Until recently, the Persians have been in charge. And they weren't particularly worried about murder. Now, now we have the Greeks. I'll discuss that in a second, what that means. No particular about murder. They're, they're, they're actually, uh, it, it reminds me, it's like when the, uh, you know, when the Victorian police say, you know, this month we're going to be focusing on seatbelts. Well, Rav said to him, look, the current government, they're focusing on murder as a thing. So you might want to, uh, we might need to, uh, to do something about this. And uh, what that really means, and, and when we look at this historically and we try to unwrap Rav's statement that he's making that there's been a change of authorities, uh, analysts of the Gemara and historians uh, are enabled by that to be able to pretty much locate what Rav is talking about, because in the 220s, of course, is the great shift in uh, regime in Babylonia between the Parthians, who Rav clearly refers to as the Persians, and the rise of the new Sassanid Empire under Ardashid I and followed by Shapur I and so on, and we've discussed that elsewhere. This is a big sea change in uh, Persian Babylonian uh, political regimes. And although the Sassanids were not Greeks, uh, he refers to them here as, uh, as, as Yuvanim, but it's clearly not the Greeks. So the statement that the Persians were, were here, now the Greeks are here, would have been correct 500 years earlier uh, when Alexander the Great defeated Persia, but that's not what he's referring to here. He's referring to the fact that the Sassanids have taken over the, uh, the regime. And they have taken away from us, because we know this historically, is that under the Parthians, Jewish communities had the authority to apply their own capital punishments within their own communities. So if someone died in, the, in a legal process within the Jewish community, the government was not going to investigate that. They would say the Jews know what they're doing. They have authority to govern their own community, and we're not going to interfere. But now the Sassanids, do not allow us that privilege, and they don't. Uh, we don't have that authority anymore. And capital cases need to be brought before the Sassanid authorities, and that's where they're going to start looking and seeing what's going. And in fact, he even says to them, they're, they're, they're particular now about uh, killing people. The Amri Maradin Maradin that they would say, especially in this particular case where this individual wanted to show the authorities someone else's property and we kill them, they will say that we are in fact rebelling. That we are rebelling against them and that's not going to be good. And then he gives him some advice and he says to him, this is really where, this is really where the relevance starts to, uh, to be frightening. He says to him, Go immediately to the land of Israel. In other words, I don't know if you could imagine such a situation that someone uh, that commits an act or an atrocity or some kind of uh, 
dodgy situation uh, in the diaspora. And the first thing they do is they jump on, a, on an LL plane to, uh, to Israel and they go and live in Israel and get away from the authorities here and uh, you'll be safer in Israel. Uh, that, was, that, 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 that could never happen today. Uh, but get up and go to the land of Israel. Now, um, um, before we go further in the story, and we're, this is really only the first part, uh, and as I said, you know, even if we spend this entire four-week series just on this particular um, agaric narrative, we wouldn't really get to all of the underlying issues. Uh, but there is, I do, since we do have the luxury of doing this in a little bit of depth, I, I just want to uh, highlight, especially for those who've got the page open, uh, a very interesting uh, Tosafot on the page where they refer us here on the subject of uh, the statement of Rav that now the Greeks are in charge, uh, what we understand him to mean the Sassanid Empire, but now the Greeks are in charge. And so Tosafot refers, to refers us to another Talmudic passage in, uh, in Gittin. And in uh, that passage in Gittin, uh, it, uh, there is a, a, a similar kind of a story. What, what, what they're, they're talking about is uh, that uh, two great sages, uh, they're, sitting, they're sitting in Rabba Babalchana, sorry, uh, is sitting in Babylonian. They're having a discussion. Uh, what that discussion is is interesting itself. If you go to uh, the uh, tractate of Gittin, the 16b, and while they're having the discussion, a Zoroastrian fanatic, um, Zoroastrianism being the religion of the, of, of the time, that's, and the Sassanids, when they came in, were very frum. Those of you who are familiar with the history, Sassanid history of the third century will know the role played by religion and various religious um, uh, revolutions that were had within the early Sassanid uh, dynasty. So a fanatic a Zoroastrian runs into the Bet Midrash he runs into where they're studying and he grabs the lamp, he grabs the fire and uh, leaves them in darkness and he runs out because fire is holy to the Zoroastrians. And uh, the rabbis were claiming, uh, Rabbi Babrachana says that, he says to Hashem, he says to God, would that we were living in the shadow of the descendants of Esau or in your direct shadow rather than with these Persians. Uh, meaning that the Romans would have been preferable to living with the Persians. Uh, that itself is such a, a phenomenally interesting historiographic remark uh, because we know that life in the Roman Empire for Jews during this period and subsequent periods certainly wasn't a picnic. Uh, so you can imagine what he meant when he was living in Persia under these levels of fanaticism. And using that episode, Tosfot is trying to help us understand the statement of Rav about what's happening. So there was a time of tremendous instability. And therefore, uh, and of course, in the land of Israel, during the third century, the first half of the third century, is still very much within the Roman Empire. And things were both uh, better and worse in different ways for Jewish communities there. The great rabbi, 
the great rabbi at the time in the land of Israel uh, was Rav Yochanan, the overwhelmingly dominant sage in the land of Israel who had opened his yeshiva in Tiberias. And that is where Rav Kahana is going to go. But he says to him, Rav says to him, before you go, the Kabil Allah, and accept upon yourself, in other words, I'm telling you, as your teacher, accept upon yourself, don't ask any questions, even though you're a great sage, when you go there, and you're going to enter into their academies of study, you're not going to ask any questions for seven years. For seven years, you're going to just be quiet and keep to yourself. And one of the reasons behind this note, commentators, is because Rav Kahana was not guilty of murder, given that he was legally justified in killing this defendant, but he may have been slightly guilty of rashly making judgment in front of his own teacher, Rav, and uh, jumping up before Rav had the chance to pronounce the halakha. In any event, he, Rav knows that Rav Kahana needs to keep a low profile. So he says, when you go to Israel, go under the radar. You're a very big scholar. You're hard not to notice, but you're going to have to keep quiet for seven years. And what we're going to find out next week is just what happens when Rav Kahana turns up in the land of Israel and it goes into the academy of Rabbi Yochanan and just how difficult it was for him uh, to keep quiet. Uh, and I hope that as many of you will join us for this uh, fascinating Gemara that we will uh, continue uh, to unpack. And I can tell you now that it's going to get, uh, if you haven't looked at it, you'll, you'll find out that it gets wilder than uh, your imagination. So uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.